0: We're in 1 Timothy, chapter 2, in the middle of, of verse 8. We stopped the last lessons in the middle of, of verse 8. Uh, he was speaking, the apostle, as an apostle. Therefore, he gives commands. These are not just his wishes or desires. Paul makes it plain when he's given his opinion, and he makes it plain when he's not. So Paul allows himself at times to give an opinion, when it could go either way. Like at first, he said he desired that all men, disciples, be single like he was, and not be married and have the problems with all of that if you're going to serve the Lord in a different way. But he only used that at certain occasions. At other times, he said he wished all the women under 50 would marry and bear children. So it's what was going on, the persecution, the trouble, he advised certain things at that time. But he did not put any command from the Lord. And he said, if you married, you've not sinned. And then Jesus, remember, Jesus said, all men could not receive the saying of being single or eunuchs before the Lord. He said, only those who are gifted. So most men and most Christians should marry or shall marry. That's the norm, okay? Later in his epistle, he calls those who forbid people to marry and eat or drink wine, he called it a doctrine of devils. So he would call the Roman Catholic system of the clergy not marry, and he would consider it a demonic teaching. It was never put on anybody. And they find out over the years that over half of the people who are supposed to be celebrants are in adultery and fornication and homosexuality. So they're not keeping their vows because they're not gifted for it and they've not received any wisdom. And of course, if they're a Roman Catholic and various liberal Protestant churches, they're not a real church anyway. They're a false church run by the devil, not by the Lord. Okay, I'll get some static because of that, huh? And so, most should marry and will marry. But later in the epistle, he calls those who forbid and teach that they cannot marry if they're the clergy or leaders in the church. He called it a doctrine of devils. So he makes it very plain what he thinks on the subject. There is no command in the New Testament in the epistles for anyone to marry or not marry. It's left up to the individual if they meet the conditions that God lays down. So that's why Paul, uh, you see in Timothy, we see in Hebrews, all mature Christian men could teach publicly if they wanted to, if they're mature. But the other fivefold ministries, it implies you have the special call for it. You don't choose to be an apostle or a prophet or an evangelist. It seems like, first of all, you have to be a sound teacher. And every mature Christian man is supposed to be able to teach one-on-one. But then he's talking about if you choose or desire to be a public teacher, he gives you the qualifications. And, of course, that's with God's approval. So when people lay hands on people to give them the ministry— it means nothing if god hasn't already called them if god hasn't dealt with them you got empty hands on empty heads so all of this don't mean nothing when you set up babes and novices and ignorant worldly people in the church god does not recognize it his lamp stands not there so it's false and god does not want babes and beginner christians teaching publicly because they need to drink the milk of the word and grow and understand between good and evil, and that takes a spiritual understanding. They have to be trained by the Lord. Then they're able to stand. Only mature Christians have ministry. A lot of people think, think every Christian does something. No, he's prepared. But babes and novices are not to teach or have authority. Paul says, you don't do it, lest they be lifted up with pride. They'll think they're special when they're not. And he used, like the devil, he said, devil as Lucifer was perfect in all his ways. But he initiated the first sin. He thought he was more special than he was, and he wanted to be God, a God. And that's when he was finally cast out of heaven, when God tested him and the angels He went beyond. The word transgress means to go beyond the law, the rules. So there are many things that are neutral. Money, sex, position in the world, certain things are neutral. They're neither good nor bad. It's what the person does with them. So alcohol is bad if you get drunk. You'll go to hell. But it's used in medicine and all kinds of other things that are good. So it's a neutral thing. All things are pure to the person who is pure, but he does not have license to sin. He does not have grace to do as he pleases. He has liberty in the Lord to do various things, but again, he does not have any liberty to sin, and people know what sin is. God's put it in them until they become demon-possessed. They know right from wrong and they fight their conscience and lie to their conscience, then they can sear their conscience, and they don't know the difference anymore. But initially, God gives the inner law. So when people are evil and do something wrong, their conscience bothers them, and they know something's wrong, because God has set that in man. So there was no command for any Christian to marry or not marry. There were certain groups years ago that people would join and to go their particular way, and they would pray and, and tell certain women and men they were supposed to marry a certain girl. or a certain, And a lot of the women got husbands that way, but then they lost their husbands later because he later on began to figure out this wasn't of God. They tracked me. So the women got together and picked a nice, good-looking man for an ugly girl that nobody wanted. And he was told by the Lord, you're to marry. And so he thought he had to obey. Well, again, that's demonic as much as forbidding people to marry that's in the fivefold ministry. Okay, but we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. He makes an alway statement here. Marriage is honorable among everyone. He's talking about all Christians. And the bed is undefiled. Otherwise, the sex within marriage is holy and it's not sinful. But he makes it very clear in the next part of the verse. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So any sexual relations between anybody that's not in a marriage of a man and a woman is considered fornication. Adultery even comes from it. It means they're impure. They've transgressed the law of God. What was the law? That sex was made for marriage, for children, and for pleasure within the marriage. And that's where God blessed it. And to use it outside is called transgression. And it's named as the gross sins. So most of the people we're around and live around, and many that claim to be Christians, they're fornicators. They have sex with their girlfriend and boyfriends, and they sleep with their neighbor's wives, and and yet they go to church and think they're Christians. But they'll open their eyes in the lake of fire and be damned, because God makes no exceptions. So we can see why Jesus, during his time, he said, you live, this is an adulterous generation. And it became so bad during Noah's time, he said, from their youth up, and God used the human expression, it repents me of a made man, and he drowned them all. And it was because of their perverseness. And that's why he judged Israel. Most of the great times in their idolatry they went to other religions because the other religions had sex as a part of the religion, so they could fornicate and commit adultery and have all kinds of orgies, and their God let them do that. But God said, you're going to be a holy people, and I'm not going to allow you to do this. But you can see why from the fleshly standpoint, how it's easy to be drawn away if they didn't stay close to the Lord and keep his commandments, that the corrupt nature Loves the pleasures of sin for a season, but it means for a season. So if you indulge and you live that kind of life in sin and pleasure and you find your own life and do as you please, that's just for this life. But you'll spend eternity in the lake of fire. So people need to reconsider uh, what they're doing, okay? So he will judge them. And the next verse, which I thought was interesting— so I was, I'm just bringing it out now. After he says that, he said, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with what you have. The prosperity people are given over to materialism. That's covetousness. And Paul said covetousness is idolatry. And he makes it very plain. He said, and you know that no idolater will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So, people given over to money, love of money and things and greed and materialism, they're just as bad as the fornicator and the adulterer. But see, people, they'd say again, like the false religions, oh, God wants you to be a king's kid. He wants you to live heaven on earth. There was no such teaching in Scripture. They take Old Testament, that was a different covenant, and God allowed them to do certain things with money and accumulate, but they still could not commit the sins of greed. They had to share, and even in the New Testament, Paul says, if you have money as a Christian, he's, if you're rich, be rich in good works. And otherwise, if you've got lots of money and you're just squandered on yourself, you're a bad steward, and you probably won't make it to heaven because you're abusing God's ministry and what he called it for. So he says, overall, be content with your lot in life, and if it changes, good, but if it doesn't, you obey the Lord anyway. So many people, they're sadly taught, if they serve the Lord, they'll get everything they want. That's a lie. That does not apply. And so they get disappointed when they try to do good, and then they don't accumulate money, because God is not that interested in it, unless he has a particular ministry. And those who are given lots of money, he said, it's liberally from God's grace that you will be liberal to others. The main context was that money, excess, lots of money, was to be helped for the body of Christ. It wasn't to build big homes and live in luxury. Christians cannot live in luxury. That means they're self-absorbed and they're materialistic. So that's gonna cause a lot of them to be speechless because they don't wanna hear that. They want to believe God wants them to have all of this and they won't listen so when they open their eyes in hell, they're not going to be too surprised. When they know the truth, then it's too late to do anything about it. So we see that living the Christian life is not an easy thing, and the darker the world gets, it's, it's a foreign concept to the world. It takes the Lord and our obedience to get grace to live these ways, because most people of the world, grown adults, are promiscuous. And they have sexual problems, and even the ones that are fateful in their marriage, they spend full hours a day watching pornography so if you are watching that, you are a precipitation you are sharing in that if you find pleasure in that, you're in it. You can split hairs all you want so once you have a sexual a drawing. Paul said to the Christians and Mary, it's better than Mary and burn." but he didn't approve of people flirting with each other and getting the first and second base and feeling each other up. They did everything but intercourse as if this was okay. Once you enter a sexual relationship, you're already guilty before God. And that's what he meant when he said if a man is lusting after another man's wife, he's already committed adultery and God's going to judge it more severely with the Christian. Under the old covenant, he only basically judged what they outwardly did. They could think about a lot of these things, and it was wrong, but God often winked at it, and he did not judge it until it was manifested. But in the new covenant, we have the power of the Holy Spirit, and we had to guard our minds and not meditate on uncleanness and pure things because you've entered into the spirit of it. So you got a lot of people who are idolatrous, and they think they're good Christians. And they covet other Christians' wealth and position. To covet is to strongly lust for something beyond the legal means. And so they want to keep up with the Joneses. They want what they got. That's called covetousness. And Paul makes it plain. No covetous person who is an idolatrous will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have a fine line, and people try to make this line crooked and say it's okay. They like license the sin, and God, we'll just lose a few rewards. You'll lose your eternal soul and destiny if people persist in these things, okay? And the false shepherds will encourage you in it, okay? Now, let's read verse 8 again. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, Without wrath or dissension or problems and strife is what he's talking about. Okay, and why is he doing this? Like he said, he's stating something. The Jews and the Romans and their religions and many of the other pagan religions often they stood and lifted their hands. It was a a common thing among all the many of the religions religions. If you prayed publicly or with other people, you usually stood and raised your hand. So there was not the kneeling and praying that was developed years later, uh, but you could pray in that way, okay? So he's stating now in the new covenant, it's not the position of the body or the place you're to be. It's the heart. So wherever you're at, if the heart's right, It doesn't matter the position of the body, and it doesn't matter where you're at. If two or three Christians decide to have church in the dump yard, that's going to be the holy place where God meets them. And if there are no Christians in a beautiful cathedral, only the devil's there. God is not there with them, okay? It's a false religion. So what he's saying is we are to have holy hands. That means whatever our hands do must be good or evil. The priest under the law, their right thumb was anointed with oil, and their ear, right ear, and their right toe. So their ear was to hear and be anointed to hear from God. Their hand, the thumb is the strongest of the fingers. That was what work you did. It was to be anointed by God. And your right toe, your feet, wherever you walk, was to be led by God. And that's what it meant for the priest before they were... A commission fully. They had to have the blood and the oil put on them, okay? And so he's saying if you're going to lift up holy hands, that means no practicing sins or things that would cause God not to hear, to answer. So God has said several times, mainly in the old, but it applies now if you read the spirit of it, God said, it's your sins that have kept me from hearing you. Well, God hears everything and sees all, but he will not hear it to answer. He will not answer their prayer, is what he means. There's sin in your heart. James states it another way. He said, if you're double-minded, you're living for the Lord, and then you're living with the world back and forth, a roller coaster. He said, do not think that you'll get anything from the Lord. So he comes right out and says, God's not going to answer your prayers. So if you're lukewarm and double-minded and you're not stable in that way, baby Christians do not have to be carnal Christians. They walk in the light they have. Nobody has to be carnal. Paul said if you practice carnality, he wasn't talking about then teachers and not spiritual things, babes not understanding. He was talking about the grosser sins he said, if you live them, you will die if you submit to them. So he did not expect Christians to live sinful lives if they either conformed or they got out. That's why the Lord said, I, I could wish that you would be hot or cold, but because you're neither, I'm going to make you one way or the other. I'm going to throw you out. The word is, I will spew or vomit you. You are a part of me, but now you're not a part of me. So that's his attitude toward the double-minded. Okay? And so he hears and sees all, but he doesn't hear to answer if people aren't in the right position with the Lord. He's not interested in the prayers of the wicked people. You have people always, and even wicked when praying at times, God will do this. He's not interested in one thing, that you repent. You're under no covenant. He's under no obligation And sometimes he can extend grace and test people and see if they're going to respond. But the normal way of the Lord is not to hear sinners' prayers. The sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Prostitutes under the law, male or female, their gifts would not be received. God would judge them more severely. He didn't want nothing from them because their heart was wicked. He don't need their gifts. And so people need to understand, a lot of people to ease their conscience, they live a wicked life, but they'll give and do some humanitarian good, think it's going to help them. It's not going to. It's going to damn them further for insulting God. He does not need anything from a wicked person, but he wants their repentance. That's the only thing he's interested in. And if he answers their prayers sometimes, it's to bring them trouble. It's not to bless them. He'll send the waste and disease with it. So when the children of Israel murmured and complained and didn't want to eat the manor and they found it boring after a while, they kept complaining they needed meat. They needed meat to eat and lusted out. and the quail came by the millions and it says they filled themselves. They almost vomited and then the strong ones got killed. He killed the strongest ones among them because they lusted. They refused to be disciplined and trained by the Lord, so he smote them, he, but he gave them what they wanted. See? So people, wicked people and backsliders and carnal Christians asking God for things, they may get what they want, but it's not going to work for their good. So the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds, there's no toil with it. So you can be rich and still be cursed and God can let your sins come back upon you. That's his right whenever he wants to do it. So we pray without wrath, okay? Wrath is an expression of anger. You do something with the anger. The difference, too, like we see programs and they're appealing to you for money to help certain poor people or tragedies and all of that. And most people look at it and and though many are generous and help, they have pity and they feel sorry for them. But they don't do anything, so it's wasted. It's compassion means you act on, on the pity. And that's why James said, you think you're a Christian and you believe in the Lord, and yet your brother's in dire need, and you simply say, well, I'll pray for you and Lord bless you. And he says, and you don't give him anything to help him? He asks a rhetorical question. Can this kind of faith save you? He's saying, is this a real Christian faith? And what he's saying is, no, you're not a real Christian. See, That's the kind of works he was talking about, not pagan human works or Catholicism or spiritual works. If you believe something, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you obey him or you're not a Christian. See, they think it's all mental. But it's not. You have to prove when you give your life to the Lord to get saved, you're not your own anymore. You belong to him. So you're not free to do as you please. You've traded your master, the devil, for the Lord. And so as you obey the devil and the world, the flesh, you're expected to obey the Lord, or you will be considered a traitor. Very simple. But people like to skirt around all of these. So Paul was saying the same thing. So if you feel moved to help someone as a Christian, and you feel the Lord wants you to help them, you give them something. Otherwise, why should you pity them? If you have nothing to give them, you pray for them. You do something that will work for them. But vanity and feeling good, oh, not so bad. It's hypocrisy as far as the Lord's concerned. So you do not pray while you have expressed anger toward people. You're continually carrying this, is what he's saying. There's a place for anger and wrath, and then there's a limit to it, even for the Christian. So there can be no selfish anger. There can be no selfish anger or unforgiveness or vindictiveness toward people if you're going to pray. Jesus said, if we don't forgive other Christians, he wasn't talking about everybody in the world. That's another false teaching out there by the false, liberal, godless ministers that don't even know the Lord. No, God will not forgive us our sins if we do not forgive what Christians have done to us. And people think that's a blanket statement. Now, we're going to find out it's not. And the Christian's not required to forgive what is not asked. If it's gross sin and a person does not ask forgiveness, you do not give forgiveness. You can't do it. God doesn't do it. He can be gracious and merciful, but he cannot and will not forgive sin that's not confessed and repented of. So do you think you're better than God, that you can do better than he can do? Peter asked the Lord, how often must I forgive my brother? Up to seven times. That was the completeness. he think I've done enough. And Jesus said, not seven, but seven times 70. In other words, You have to continually forgive people and Christians their failures. But it does not mean the same sin repeatedly, because there's things you can do if a Christian repeats it to the same person. There's things he has that he can do that will cause problems for this person. He's not just to say, oh, forget it. God doesn't expect you to be a doormat for other Christians. He expects them to treat you right as you would expect it to treat them right. And if you don't, there's a problem with it. Jesus said, if you go and ask forgiveness from someone and they won't do it, he said, you call another Christian to show them that you tried to make it right, and they won't do it. He said, then the churches will throw them out and have nothing to do with them. Why? Because they're acting like a pagan. They refuse to forgive when Christ commands it, that if people want to make things right, Christians— then you make things right. You let go of it. But if you hold their sin against them, God will hold your sins against you from that moment on. So people need to understand that. And there's ways to deal with these things so we don't become bitter and resentful and spiteful. So we forgive and bear with other Christians' faith and their failures. As James says, in many things we offend all. Sometimes we offend people and our conscience is not aware we've done it, but that person feels offended. And we've done it sometimes, but we just aren't aware of it. He said, But if you don't offend with your mouth, you're a complete man. He didn't mean anything else you did was okay. He's simply saying it's the tongue that causes so much trouble. And so if you keep your mouth shut, you won't get into debates and arguments and gossip and slander. That's what he's talking about. You'll be a complete person, a perfect Christian in that sense, okay? So on the other hand, in major sins, we're not talking about petty faults, forgot to say good morning to someone, and all week long they're hurt, It's because they need to grow up as a Christian and stop thinking about themselves, see? Someone should rebuke them and say, grow up. We pass many people, and we don't stop every minute and say, how you doing? How you doing? It would occupy a whole day. But some people are so sensitive, this person didn't speak to me. Well, isn't that terrible? Why don't you grow up? That's what they should be told. They should be rebuked, okay? James would call them foolish people. He wouldn't tolerate this. So on the other hand, a major sin We do not have to forgive unless the one asks for forgiveness. There's no place in Scripture. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. That is, you can express displeasure, anger, and expect the change of actions. And if it's not, you could ask a true church, but there's not many around, to expel him from the fellowship because he's a wicked person. He's already despised God's word, so he's required to, and the confession and the asking must be genuine. It mustn't be some flippant, and if they've done something terribly wrong, they should do whatever's necessary to make up, to show some feet on their action that they really are sorry. That's true repentance. You make up and do what you can if you know you've really offended a Christian the wrong way. So if a Christian does something bad enough, we're not talking about petty stuff. Paul said, we forgive each other as God forgave us for Christ's sake. He wouldn't talk about these little minor, so many things we forget about and let it pass. But if it's a knowledgeable enough sin and it's bothering you enough, then you need to rebuke the person. You need to go to them and tell them, I don't like what you did to me. You don't have to take it. You don't have to be a doormat. You can say, it's time you grow up and stop acting like a child and a heathen. You insulted these people, you insulted me, and we're not going to let it slide until you correct it. And if you don't correct it, you're going to another fellowship because you're not fellowshipping with us. See? Well, you can see why the early church didn't have that many members and that many, and you can see why nowadays they're churches They are mostly not Christians. And they just have a form of godliness, but no power. They are self-absorbed, idolaters, and most of them, uh, the two billion that claim to be Christians, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. You're workers of lawlessness. You were never mine. You were never a Christian. But 95% or more or higher that claim to be Christians are not Christians. And they believe Jesus died on the cross and raised again. And they will call him Lord, Lord. But he don't recognize it, okay? So much for verbal confession. Verbal confession of Christ doesn't mean nothing. If the heart hasn't changed, and if the spirit isn't working, it's lip service. And the Lord told the Jews and various times, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You're not close to me at all. Even in a temple, they had people who sang and played instruments unto the Lord. And it was like the mega churches beautiful music, and it inspired people and their emotions got all, and God said, I hate your music and your instruments. He said, I despise it. He said, because see, their heart wasn't right. He told me he didn't want to hear it. So all of that don't move, God. That moves the world and worldly people. It's just emotionalism emotionalism and praising God and singing means nothing to him if you're living in sin. You're living in adultery and you do all that, you're going to bring double wrath on you in the day of judgment. You're a hypocrite. So he's warning. He's not into lip service, mimicking, false praise. God's not interested in that, okay? But that's religion, and that's what most so-called Christian religion has come to in the age that we live for. So if your brother sins against you and it's bad enough, rebuke him. That is, you can express your anger and you can expect a change of actions. Then Jesus said, if he asks forgiveness, forgive him. He didn't say forgive him if he doesn't ask for forgiveness. You have to wait and see if he's truly repentant. And if he don't, you don't forgive him. That's God, because God hasn't forgiven him. And God's not gonna forgive him. So, how can you do something and be more holier than God? Can't be done, okay? So, we are not expected to be blind to repeated sins or gross actions by those who are claiming to be true Christians, okay? And if we do not rebuke and punish and discipline as we do children often, we get ourselves into a situation that most people that don't forgive and don't, they resent them. They start to slander them. They go to everybody else and tell them what this person did to me. Your sin is greater than what the person did to you, because it was your job to go to them and make it right. And if you share it with other people as a complaint, as gossip, you're in the worst sin. God's going to hold you more responsible for your actions, okay? And not only at the extreme, if the His disciple, the Christian, refused to make things right. He was removed from the fellowship. He was put out. They broke fellowship, and God broke relationship. See? He would eventually cut them off. He said, put that wicked person away from you. No Christian's ever called a wicked person. Paul said, you should have put him away from you, because you've gone to him and dealt with him. The particular man was having a sexual relationship with his father's concubine or second wife. And yes, some of the wealthier ones had more than that when they came to the Lord, so God didn't expect them to get rid of their wives. And sometimes it was the second wife they think the man may have... His father may have married a nice, pretty young woman, and he, he got turned on and started having an affair with her. So... They said, you should have put him out. He rebuked the church for not taking care of it. He said he was ashamed of him. You allow that. He said, put that wicked person away from you. Well, eventually he did repent, and then he had to write in a letter, because they went so far the other way, they wouldn't forgive him. And, And he changed, and they said, no, you have to take him back now, so he don't be overwhelmed and feel there's no hope for him. So... Paul really had to deal with some people, didn't he, that we would laugh at today, but they thought differently too back then. So not only did the church remove the sinning person, they broke the relationship, and they were not allowed to come into the church and have communion with them or wherever they gathered. And so they would treat the unrepentant one as he was a wicked sinner, and people just have a problem with that, don't they? Now, First Corinthians chapter 5, we'll go to that. So you'll have a scripture to go study later. Verse 11 to 13. But now I have written to you not to keep company, not to have fellowship with, is what he's talking about, anyone who says he's a Christian, a Christian brother. But if he's a fornicator, if he's covetous, an idolater, if he's got a bad temper and reviles and if he's a drunkard, he doesn't say an alcoholic disease, or someone who extorts money from you and others, he said not even to eat with such a person. You're to treat them as they are, a wicked sinner. You can be nicer to the sinner. Uh, under the uh, Bible, Paul said you could eat with, if you're disposed to eat with the governors and leaders, and you, it was certain rules. But if he's a backslidden Christian and he hasn't repented, you can't even eat with him. You could be social with the fornicator of the world. You can be nice to him and be civil, but you can't with the backslidden Christian. And that was to show them that God has nothing to do with them. He won't let you fellowship with them because he doesn't fellowship with them. Okay? Come out from among them is what he means. And he says, verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Now, I judge not, judge not. Jesus meant judge righteously. Everybody uses that to excuse their own sins. No, the Christian elders and in a fellowship are to judge wickedness and sins and problems, and they are to do something about it. And he said this, do you not judge those who are inside? He said, you judge among Christians Errors and faults and and a bad sin—you deal with it. It says if an elder sins, you make sure you have two witnesses of it. You give him the benefit of the doubt, and then if it's true, you stand him up before the fellowship and you expose his sins. The purpose was to go right at his pride, and to show the people this man should have known better. So the elder can get double honor, as the Lord says, but he's going to get double punishment. Because God expects more. He didn't say cover it up and hide it. He said expose it. Rebuke him before everybody that the other people will learn not to sin. Talk about gross sin. So if other people who are not elders and teachers, if they see you do that to an elder or a pastor, they should fear. Well, if they're going to do that to him, they'll do that to me. So that's why he was doing that. But he said, 13, but those who are outside, the Christian influence, the worldly, the sinner, God judges, he says. See, that's not the church's problem. Therefore, put away from yourselves that wicked person. He's talking about the one that was a Christian who was sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, They hadn't repented. He said, put him out. He called him wicked. That means he's not a Christian anymore. He's lost. If he dies, he'll go straight to hell. That's what a wicked person is. No Christian is called a wicked person. He can do a wicked act, but he cannot practice and live that way. Let's take a break here.